This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. My guest today is Sam Morris, a public speaker, author, and coach. He's a person in long-term recovery and has one of the most inspiring and unique stories that I've ever heard. And a while back, he wrote us and uh, after learning about our podcast and offered to appear as a guest. And after I read his story and listened to his TED Talk, I knew he'd be a really interesting guest for this podcast, and I'm excited to have him here today. So welcome, Sam, to Beyond Belief Sobriety. It's good to have you here. Thank you very much, John. It's great to be here. You gave me a really interesting list of topics to discuss for this podcast. All of them would have been fascinating. <laughs> and uh, a lot of them would have been, uh, none of them really anything that I, I knew a lot about. But the, the one that you, you mentioned um, that I thought would be interesting for our listeners and for me personally was one on sacred masculinity. But before we get into that, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our listeners through your, your story and let us know how you got to where you are today and uh, inspired to do what you're doing today. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so my name is Sam Morris. Like you said, I'm a coach, author, speaker, and I also do uh, corporate culture consulting for a uh, consulting organization that I founded. Um, so my story starts in uh, Vermont back in the 70s. And for a very, very long time in my life, um, I looked at my childhood as amazing and full of love and joy and happiness and laughter and playing a lot of tennis and golf every summer, skiing every winter. We traveled a lot as a family. Things looked really good to me. And they were. Like, that's actually true. Like, that's absolutely true. That was actually an experience that I had as uh, growing up. However, as I got older in life and I started to have sort of repeating patterns and self-sabotaging patterns and, um, you know, going through addiction and coming out of addiction, all of it became clear that there was something else going on that I didn't really know where the root of it was. I, you know, I had that confusion that I think a lot of addicts and people that get lost in mental illness feel of like, I, I, I know I feel this way. Um, it doesn't make sense to me why I feel this way, but you know, I, I keep feeling this way or I, I feel this way for some people for 15 years straight. Other people it's, uh, you know, for me it was in and out. Um, the addiction was pretty consistent, but the mental illness, the depression, the anxiety, I would come in and out of it in like three year phases. And so, you know, as I got to the point where I was like, I need to look at this to take it to really take a look at why this keeps coming up for me. And, you know, and coming out of addiction, the, the 18 years I spent in addiction, coming out of that was the real kind of window of opportunity for me to, to look at the first things as what I knew, that, that I knew I had social anxiety. And that social anxiety goes back to my childhood in that I was very, very sick as a kid. I had a lot, like really, really severe asthma, really, really severe, and a long list of food and environmental allergies. Um, to the point where it made the world seem very threatening and hard for me. So I would avoid um, birthday parties, Christmas parties, slumber parties, Boy Scout trips, like all the things that kids do to build that tribe in a community with other, other boys is that they, I would avoid those. 
uh, out of fear of, you know, like in Vermont, for example, a lot of birthday parties are in barns where hay and animal dander and all that stuff has, is just floating around the air. And so for me, what that meant is like, I'm walking into a death trap. You know, I, I knew those were my triggers, my aller, my asthmatic and allergenic triggers. And not to mention if I was, if my, if my parents weren't there and I had a piece of cake that had a walnut in it, what's going to happen? I'm, I'm going to be out there having an anaphylactic reaction to this walnut and I'm not going to have anybody there to protect me. So I, I developed this, like, at first it was just like, I was, I was, you know, I was choosing safety, but over time, all that choosing safety really made me a very withdrawn person, withdrawn kid, withdrawn um, into adulthood where I really struggled with being social and feeling very uncomfortable in social situations and feeling very like the spotlights on me kind of thing. And, um, you know, it, it all was birthed from that threat of, or that fear I had of the world. And so when I found alcohol, um, I found, I found alcohol later in life, mostly because of tennis. Uh, tennis was the number one priority for me. And it was, I was dead set on following Andre Agassi's footsteps onto the pro tour. And, uh, that was the priority for me. So I didn't really start drinking until, um, I mean, I started in college, uh, a few times before college, I, I really started in college and then after college and my tennis career ended is when the drinking really picked up. But when I found drinking, it removed that social anxiety for me. And so I, I learned to love going to football games and going to concerts and going to parties and to bars and doing all the things that you do at the bars. You chase the girls, you tell jokes, you laugh with your buddies. Like, you know, I really learned to enjoy that stuff with the crutch or the lube of alcohol, that social lubricant. And so as I kind of progress through that, I never dealt with that, that trauma from my childhood. So like I had this view that my childhood was amazing and it was, but I also didn't really acknowledge that I went through a lot as a child, you know, and it started off with at the day I was born and it started off with my umbilical cord being wrapped around my head and, and emergency C-section. So I had some birth trauma there and this is, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's funny as we do this work, like we work our addiction backward a little bit and we figure out why we're drinking and doing drugs the way we do. And then the, the more layers of the onion you remove, the further back you go. Um, I've gotten back this far and pretty, and even before this to when I was in the, my mom's womb, um, she thought, she thought that I was cancer for the first few months of the pregnancy. And so there's just, there, I, to say that that doesn't matter, it would be ignorant of me. And I think it, it, it's something that I've really taken a look at. They're just the energy around that. So I never looked at all any of these traumas. Like I always just operated over them thinking that, you know, tennis was a bandaid. Girls were a bandaid. Um, there's a lot of band-aids in my life. A, a jobs out of college like these things all kind of put a nice facade on the fact that inside I was at war with myself and so finally um when I was about uh 33 years old you know the consequences started to show up and the consequences they they, they were legal you know the, the the tangible ones were the legal the DUI the drunken public um maybe you know falling down and, and you know splitting open my elbow or you know those kind of things but also my relationships really started to suffer. My family and I were not, we would not get along. Um, there was, I, I was lying and cheating and stealing and doing all the things. And, you know, girlfriends would come and go because I would basically be a really great boyfriend. And then over time, when I got more comfortable and I, my drinking would get in the way and I would be a not so great boyfriend. 
And then the girl would leave and I would get depressed because that meant my bandaid was off my bullet hole of you know, my lack of self-love. So part of the trauma of that childhood and part of the experience of my childhood was that with those threats, I had to be super vigilant. I, I like to say that the difference between uh, being vigilant and being observant or just being witness is that vigilance is based in fear and observance or just being witness is compassionate and loving. I was very vigilant. So I was in that basically a fight or flight state for a lot of my childhood, which I never had the opportunity to learn to, to love myself, to accept myself, to, to trust my body. I couldn't, I had no trust in my body. So no trust in myself, which manifested, you know, in the physical, but then also the emotional, like no, no, not able to trust my emotions, my thoughts, my, my decision-making, all that stuff. Cause I always was relying on, I mean, for one, I was in that fear state, but I was always also relying on other people to protect me. Um, you know, as an eight-year-old kid, when you have an asthma attack at two in the morning, there's not a lot you can do for yourself. You know, your parents will come in and take you to the hospital. And so, but I learned like that's kind of the way the world goes. So when something's wrong, someone will come save me. And it's not, I didn't consciously say like, okay, this is how I'm going to operate in life. It was just a core belief that got installed because that was all I knew. And so... Um, you know, I got, I, I, so from age 33 to 38 was the real kind of dead zone, I guess you could say of my addiction where couldn't not able to hold a job, no relationships, really DUI, six DUIs. Um, one night, one time I was eight nights in jail, multiple trips to the hospital, gave myself oral cancer two times from drinking, uh, fell off a balcony one time, 35 feet. And just like complete trail of wreckage for five years. And really, if I'm being honest, when I say it was 18 years, it really all started when I was, you know, 21, 22. And so, um, you know, and that's another thing. It's like when we think, uh, for me, when I thought, when I stopped drinking, I, I asked my family one time, you know, when do you think this all started? And they said 20 years old. And I wow. was like, no, no, no. This is, I, I, for me, like my impression was that it was like 29, 30. Mm -hmm. I was like, this has only been going on for three years. And I was like, <laughs> I was, you know, I thought that's because that's when the consequences started sure. to show up, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. That's when like, I feel, I was starting to feel the pain that they had been feeling. So it's funny now that, now that I've done this work, I can look back and look at like, there's behaviors all the way back into teenage years that would, you know, kind of like predispose this direction. And so for those five years from 33 to 38, it was, you know, bouncing up and down the East coast from Miami to North Carolina, back to South Florida, back to North Carolina. And then, um, the day it all ended was November 21st of 2012. And, you know, it's, it's one of those spiritual awakenings, moments of clarity. Just, I, people ask me what happened and I, I really can't tell you what happened. I just know that like at that moment it was 4am and I was sitting at my kitchen table, didn't have any plan to stop. I had alcohol, I had drugs, I had it all, I was ready to go. But something came over me where it was a combination of fear of the sun coming up and just recognition of all the wreckage that had happened. You know, I was tired, really tired and just exhausted. And, you know, like I saw my dad's face and I saw my sister's despair and my mom's tears and I, I felt it all. And I just said, this cannot go on at all, no matter what. I don't know. I'm scared of life without alcohol. I don't know what dates are going to look like. I don't know what socializing is going to look like, but I know that this can't, ha this cannot continue. And so at that moment, I just decided I, I checked myself into a psych ward and then went to rehab for nine months. 
and then went to San Francisco. And that's kind of when things really shifted for me because I stopped fighting everything. I stopped, you know, I stopped, I stopped fighting and started looking. I started looking at like what my, I knew social anxiety was a thing. And so I, I handled that first. And then a couple of years into sobriety, I, I started, I ended up depressed again. And I, and I, I it was kind of one of those things like the social anxiety gets lifted. Okay. We know about that. Like, and then the next one bubbles up the depression next one bubbles up. You know, I like to be saved like the, the stories. And then as you get deeper, these things all bubble to the surface and they have to be handled kind of in the order that they show up. And so over the next six years, I did a lot of work through AA, through therapy, through the steps. After that, I, uh, at six, six or six and a half years sober, I decided that um, I need to, like I was, I was experiencing some of the re- repetitive pain. Some of the stories were keep, kept coming up for me. Like I, I, I ended up, I, I, uh, I got heartbroken again. Uh, you know, a girlfriend had left me after three years, which was my typical run. Um, you know, it was, I was good for three years and then I would self-sabotage and somehow, and then it would just go to hell and that was it. And then, um, so I ended up in this place again and I had a friend ask me, he said, and I said, I was at a a men's group and I said, men's weekend retreat. And I said, you know, I, I always end up here. This always happens to me and I'm terrible at heartbreak. And he said, well, you, you need to stop asking. You need, to, you need to stop looking at, like, I always end up here, and this always happens to me, but look inside of you and find out the place that keeps allowing this to happen. And that was an eye-opener for me. Um, you know, it was like, honestly, I was deep into heartbreak. My, I was like, I looked him in the eyes, and I was like, man, like, kick a man when he's down. <laughs> but, it, you know, it was exactly what I needed to hear. And so it, it really kicked me into action to being like, my gosh, he's right. Because I had, I had done some work around like age 35. And I was probably 41 or two at this point. So like previously, I'd done some stuff like similar to landmark training. It's called gratitude training. And I had done some stuff about how, you know, if it's to be, it's up to me. And like, I'm responsible for this, for the choices I make. And, you know, all these, like the bad things that keep happening in my life. I, those are all really choices that I've made. And so I started to look at, again, at that time, I was still deep into my addiction and I wasn't really even ready to look at it, but this seed was planted. And so when this guy asked me this question, I was kind of like, oh, like I kind of was like, all right, it's time. It's time to really look at the, get to the bottom of this stuff. Like, why does this, why do I keep, why do I keep ending up at heartbreak? Like, what about me keeps choosing it? So I got deep into my stories that developed from those core beliefs when I was a kid you know, deep into like the story of I need to be saved. You know, so I looked back and like pretty much every relationship that I was ever in, I brought that girl, I met, you know, I, I called that girl into my life to save me for, for something. Jobs. I would Which say makes total thing. sense like, with how you were conditioned as a child growing up. Makes total sense. Right. And again, like, so, you know, that's not my, the conditioning I I received as a child, not my responsibility, but it's my responsibility to now look at this and move past it and handle it because I can't keep showing up and breaking girls' hearts and breaking my heart, breaking my parents' hearts. Like I can't keep doing this. I can't keep relying on other people to save me. And so, you know, that was a a huge turning point for me was when I just took this massive amount of responsibility for like, okay, I'm willing to go as far back and as deep as I need to go to get to the root of all this stuff. Because really up until that point, it was treating symptoms and symptoms are heartbreak, you know, a, a painful event, a, a relapse in, in addiction, 
a heartbreak or getting fired from a job, um, you know, your friends getting mad, alienating you or something like these are all the, these events that we experience are really just symptoms of something more. And what we do is we, we experience a symptom, the event, and then we, we have this tendency or I had this tendency to work my way back from the event just enough to get good enough. And I always tell my clients, good enough is not good enough. Good enough is good enough to not feel pain anymore, but good enough is not good enough to be clear of the event. Because if you just get good enough, you're going to stop doing the work and you're going to slip back into the danger zone where you're, you haven't looked at the triggers, you haven't looked at the roots, you haven't looked at the pattern that, that created that self-sabotaging behavior. So until you can look at the patterns that lead up to these things, nothing much is going to change because they're deep-rooted patterns. And patterns are strong. So when I got sober at 38, I, I found personal training was my first introduction into kind of my purpose of like of healing and helping others. And then that evolved through um, recovery coaching um, and not so much like getting people sober, getting guys sober, but more so like what happens after you get sober? Because my a big problem that I experienced was, you know, I go to rehab and get out and then it's like, oh, gosh, like I'm sober, but the world is still the same. What do I do? And there was really no, so I, I would just kind of like give these guys a soft landing for once they got sober, like how do they handle work? How do they handle their families, their kids, their wives? And so then I noticed that all the guys I was working with really suffered from mental illness, depression, anxiety, um, some sort of uh, trauma. And so I moved from recovery coaching. I kind of broadened my scope into mental health coaching. And then from there, I've evolved into men's work. So I, I do, I, I hold men's retreats and I do one-on-one -on -one coaching for men. And basically what I like to say is that I guide men to heal from all the things they're scared to talk about, because that's really what keeps men sabotaging. And, you know, they, we talk about, I mean, this is kind of going towards sacred masculinity, but one of the hot topics now is toxic masculinity, which I don't agree with. Toxic masculinity is, I think, saying that the, the man himself is toxic. Which is, which is not true. The, the behaviors that he exhibits are toxic, but the, what's really going on is that he's a wounded masculine. You know, he has a wound that is showing up as a toxic behavior, whether that's anger, whether that's cheating, whether that's um, you know, lashing out at people at work. Like, it could be any number of toxic things. Um, abuse, like all, you, know, you can go down the list of toxic behaviors, but really it's, it's because that guy has not talked about all the things that scared him, all the things that he went through as a teenager. Um, because it's, we, we as a society in general, don't give men the opportunity to say, I got my heart broken when I was 11 and, and I'm scared of women ever since. There's no place. Cause if we say that, like if, if a guy says that to his wife, I mean, the ideal situation is she's like, thank you for saying that. I love you. I see your wound. I see your pain. I see your trauma. And I'm here to, I'm here to let you know that's not me. But what happens is the men tend to think that, if I tell my wife this, she's going to see me as weak and leave me. If I, if I say something about how, if I'm showing up at work as less than the man I know I can be, if, I, if I'm honest about how I feel, my boss is going to look at me as less than an employee and I'm going to get either a pay cut or fired. Like we go to this extreme. So therefore, what we do is we just operate, we hold it in. We say, all right, that doesn't, my, my feelings are my feelings and I'll, I'll power through and I'll you know, man up and just pull myself up my bootstraps, like throw some dirt on it, you know, all the cliches that really have caused men to just harbor all this pain 
all this trauma. And I was one of those men for a long time where, you know, it felt, it felt really awful for me to say, I feel insecure in a relationship because of, you know, I feel insecure in the bedroom to my girlfriend or whatever it may be. Um, You know, to be, we have to, I create spaces for men to come and talk about that stuff so that they can go back to their life, their jobs, their families, their, their girlfriends, their boyfriends, whatever it may be, and show up as the secure powerful man that, that that their world needs. Right. You know, um, sometimes I wonder if we haven't made as much progress as I think that we would have liked to have made. Uh, you know, I remember, uh, you know, uh, getting involved in, um, AA some 33 years ago, I went to a men's group and, uh, sometimes we would talk about, um, you know, how we were raised, the the social conditioning of, of being a man and, and not being able to express vulnerability and love and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but here we are now, some 30 years later, and uh, what, what I'm noticing anyway is that in society, we're beginning to um, understand gender differently. We're, we're beginning to appreciate um, um, differences of what gender means. And um, as a, as a man, as a white man, in particular, as a older white man, sometimes I feel like I'm in the listening mode, uh, because I've, I'm the one, um, I represent the, um, the group that has been causing the trouble, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so, um, I, I wonder if that, if that plays in any way, I mean, you want to be sensitive to, um, everybody i mean everybody every human being has gone through pain and there's no doubt that white men have had a privileged role in society and have caused some some problems but but does am i getting off track is there anything to what's happening currently with um with this aspect of gender and the discussions that we're having in our society today yeah, I think you're right on track. Um, I think that, I think that we're, like we said, like we, the white male has been the cause of a lot of damage. However, I think that it's with like the Me Too movement and racial inequality, like all these things, it's, it's getting, all of it is getting pushed onto the, the white men as, um, kind of a, a generality. And, I am not saying that there's no responsibility there. There is a massive load of responsibility. However, it's veering in a little bit to the way of um, emasculating a little bit. Uh, a lot of one of my clients actually, he, him and his friends talk about the fact that like they're basically afraid of their wives, um, and they they feel like they've been emasculated and and so like I think that there is a definite. I'm not saying we're there, but I think there's a definite you know a knee jerk or a a movement out of balance with it. You know, it was out of balance in one direction. I think that there's a tendency to maybe move it out of balance in another direction where, you know, all white men are threats. And so therefore everybody that comes in contact with a white man immediately goes defenses up and basically emasculates the, the, the men. And I think that it's, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place that we have to operate where we're taking responsibility and this gets into sacred masculinity where we're taking responsibility and we're not perpetrating damage any longer, but we're also, we're also moving forward knowing that like the, the, the few that have ruined, that have done the damage are not the majority. Right. And, but I think that, go ahead. I'm sorry. And, and, uh, like any social, 
I don't know if you call it social or not, but like any phenomenon of human behavior, like you said, from your own story is based on how we're conditioned, the way that we're raised, the, the, the society that we're lit, that we're living in. And that society changes, um, you know, and, and hopefully evolves for the better. And I think that's what's happening now. Um, but, but we are a product of, um, our society. hundred percent. Yeah. I think that there's, um, you know, I think that as humans and as generations, it's kind of an impossible task to keep up with the evolution of the world with the internet and connection. And so like the generations don't evolve as fast as the rest of the world is evolving. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things about the way that men were raised from, you know, world war two time that, that have stuck that were really, that were effective somewhat for a long time. But now that now they're not effective, you know, like that the lack of vulnerability, the lack of feeling your feelings, the lack of saying I love you, the lack of you know, that tough guy mentality that, that was you know, ingrained, that's gotten really outdated really quickly. And, and so it's hard for like as a human race to catch, keep up with the, the, sta- the narrative around that. And so I think there's a calibration happening, but it's, again, it's a slower calibration. It is outdated. And, and, and I believe that, and that's what I was um, working on uh, a long time ago. I'm from the generation that was um, probably conditioned to where men don't cry. Um, That uh, if I were ever to cry, uh, my father would get angry at me to tell me not to. You know, so to this day, I'm conditioned that if I'm if I'm going to feel any kind of emotion like that, I, I can't even help it. Almost automatically, I shut that down. And and I know that's that's a product of, of my conditioning from my generation and the, the generation that passed that on to me. It was if you go back further in time, it's even worse, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but um, I don't know where I'm going with that. But uh, it's interesting to take a look at that and to understand how. Um, the damage that was done and uh, the the healing that needs to take place and the changes that I need to make um, to just be a functioning human being and a, and a, and a good, uh, hopefully a, a, a positive, making a positive contribution too. Yeah. I mean, I think that when we get on to like that crying or the, the feeling of your feelings, the emotions, stuff like that, you know, it's, it's becoming very, very clear that it is much, much better to, let those out in a safe place. You know, not so much. It's not, not a great idea to walk into a board meeting and start crying, but at the same time, like there's a, there, there are places being created. I'm, I'm creating places. I have friends that there's like all these places that are being created for men to go and let that emotion out and safe environments, safe containers where they can go and cry and feel and yell and scream and get angry and talk about their dads and their moms and the, the friends that, upset them when they were five, like giving them a place for that outlet again. So when they go back to their life, it's not the powder keg inside. It's not the pressure cooker any longer. The steam has been left out, let let out of the pressure cooker. And do you think that, uh, this is something that people in recovery could, could look at, uh, is it something that maybe we're not looking at so much in the recovery community and that, that maybe we should pay more attention to? Yeah, I think that there's, I think there's, um, I mean, I think that the recovery community, it provides it. I think there's, it's tough to say. Um, I, I believe that there is value to bringing 
this type of work to men in recovery. Um, I still, I, I work with men that are in recovery still and they, you know, like it's almost like, like a men's, like a men's meeting in AA is great, but at the same time, it's almost, it's almost, it's very valuable. And I got a lot out of those and I'm not saying anything bad about them, but there's a next level to it when you can get almost take the rules off, you know, the rules of AA, like when you can take the structure away from it and just get really, really raw like really vulnerable and like the screaming and like taking, taking a group of guys to a, a secluded place in the desert and just letting them scream and dance and yell and beat pillows and do whatever else they need to do um, is very, very, very cathartic. And again, like it's, it's the release that we can't have in an AA meeting or, you know, with our families or even like, you know, once you do the work, once you've been in that place and released and done that healing, it becomes easier to do it in smaller containers and like in, in between like, you know, me and my buddies, we can, we can get real vulnerable with each other, but to have that place where you can go and just really just not care about anything and just do whatever, like it's, it's not about judgment or let's get crazy, do whatever it takes. Like let that, that poison inside of you out, that trauma that, and just heal. And then to have, to have like, to, to do that as a man, to like really let yourself go like that and then have other men see you and say to you, I see you. I, I, I'm, I'm holding you. I hear you. You're not broken. You, you have a lot of great information on your Facebook page. I saw a lot of, a lot of videos that you've, you've put out. Um, but, but basically what are you, what are you doing today? How, how are you, how are you helping people and, so I, I have three different ways that I help guys now. One is um, I do one-on-one VIP coaching in a 90-day container. So I bring guys in, it'll, and it's one-on-one. We talk every couple of weeks, and I give them action items, take them through breath work, um, just really dive deep into like creating this this place for them to come that's safe, where they can talk about all the things that scare them. Uh, like when I say like I'm here to help men heal from all the things, from everything that's ever scared them to talk about that's it. Like I, I, like that's my purpose is like, I'm here to hold space for men to heal from everything that's ever scared them. Cause that's really where the healing, cause f- being scared, that fear, that's what drives anger. That's what drives uh, insecurity. That's what, yeah, that's, I mean, that, it drives all of it. And so I do the one-on-one coaching. I do a group, a group coaching, which is in a nine week container, which is a called the conscious warrior brotherhood. And that's a pretty, like, it's a pretty set program where I take a group of guys through a nine week, uh, nine week, uh, once a week group calls. And we, we work through like nine different modules. And then I also offer, um, men's retreats at various locations. So I live, I live in T- uh, Tulum right now. And so I'm going to be offering a retreat here in Tulum in um, September. And then I'm also going to work on uh, doing one in the spring. Uh, maybe around something uh, in the the ski mountain, maybe Taos or um, somewhere big sky, something like that. Um, but there's going to be so this is the first year I've offered this. So um, every year there will be there'll be five per year, um, different locations um, around the, maybe Austin, Texas, around the United States, and then probably two international uh, retreats that there'll be um, anywhere from like 25 to 40 guys. They just come together, spend three or five days together and just have just days of, you know, some days are just super fun. Get out in the woods, do adventurous stuff, jump out of helicopters, whatever, 
whatever's on the on the agenda. And then other days are going to be sat and sitting in a room with ten other guys and just processing emotions and processing things they're scared of and getting vulnerable and looking other guys in the eyes and saying, "I see you and I hear you and I love you," and um, really getting that that intimate connection with other men. I, I just find it remarkable that you've been able to do this. I mean, when you when you think about. Um, <laughs> what you've had to overcome in your own personal recovery and then to be able to build a community like this and to, and to do this kind of work with other people. It's, it's absolutely remarkable. I, I think it's pretty amazing. Thank uh, you. When, when I look Thank back at uh, my, my own recovery, which has been <laughs> pretty slow and painful, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's pretty incredible. Did you ever imagine, um, you know, looking back that you would be um, experiencing anything like this? No, um, I, I still like I've, I've learned to let go of the how, like how it's going to look, you know, like um, I think we get wrapped up a lot in like, I know, I know what I want to do and this is how I'm going to get there. And there's no other way to do it. That in itself has caused me, you know, you miss out on things when you like, I know, I, I know what I, when I, I established my purpose and like, however that purpose looks like I'm totally like, I didn't even know before January about, the retreats and the group coaching. I was doing the one-on-one coaching, but the retreats and the group coaching, like they just like came to me. I was down here in Mexico and just, I was able to get really clear on a lot of things. And that's, those two things came in and were like, it, cause my impact, my ultimate impact is to, I want to impact 1 billion human beings. And the way I'm going to do that is through impacting these men. So if I, if I can make these men better, if I can help these men heal, you know, they'll immediately impact probably five people, their immediate family, wife, kids, maybe mother, father, and then the, the generations before and the generations back. So, you know, one-on-one coaching is great and it's valuable and I, and I love doing it, but like really like to get two things. One is like to amplify that impact is to have 15 or 20 guys on a call and be helping them. And that, that right there, that community that's created is, is everything like even in AA, the, the one, the one most valuable thing that I ever got out of AA was the brotherhood, the fellowship. Like that was it. Like, I mean, all the other stuff is really great and useful, but the fellowship is it, man. I mean, like that's the real magic of AA. And so like, I just, I know that like, and then and beyond AA, since I've left AA, yeah. And since I've left AA, like continuing to like foster those relationships and build and find those communities has been the most impactful thing of my entire life. And it really is something that I just want to bring. I just want to bring these to the, to these men that need it because it's really about that. Like men get so wrapped up in career and family and doing all these things. They lose sight of the connection with other men. Yeah. You grew beyond the 12 steps and I find myself doing that as well. Um, I think that for, I think for a lot of people in recovery, uh, they might start off in AA or NA or any of the 12 step programs. And some, and some people stay there for a good long time and, and they're, and they're content with that. Then there are others that are just like, for me personally, I am just amazed at just how huge the recovery community is and all the different options that are available for people in recovery today. And that the 12 step programs are just a tiny piece of it now a really small piece of what is actually out there. And what is so cool is people like you and others who are just creating communities on social media or any other platform they can think of that 
that that art is doing the work of recovery and not just limiting it to any particular substance, but just recovery in general, you know, from, from anything, from just the damage of (laughs) life itself, you know? So exactly. I just like seeing that. It's just, uh, it's this, uh, it's a whole new world of recovery out there that I think is just incredible. And, um, I enjoy learning more about it. I mean, it's just phenomenal to me. Every time I turn around, I learn about another group, um, that is starting something else or another person who is starting another community it's just uh, huge. It's huge. So we're fortunate to live in this time to have those kinds of resources. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, I always say like, if, if we had experienced quarantine 30 years ago without Zoom and without these connections that we have, like, oh my, I can't even imagine. Like, it was kind of like we had built this internet and, the, and Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and Zoom just for this so that we could actually survive this with some level of sanity. Was it you who wrote that the quarantine is like rehab for all of us? Was that, or is that something else I read from someone else? I read an article. Yeah, I was did. that you? Yeah. That's no, what I, thought. I, I did that. I, I made, yeah, yeah that, that, that was me. Yeah. I, uh, as soon as it happened, I recognized, I was like, you know what? Like we were all behaving like addicts, like over consuming, going at the speed of light around everything, not thinking, no awareness. And Mother Nature's like, you know what? You guys need to time out. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> it's rehab for the, yeah. for the human race. How about that? Yeah, totally, man. Well, I hope it does us some good. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sam. I, I really appreciate you coming on here. It's been a great conversation. And I think that our listeners are going to appreciate this as well. And I look forward to following you and seeing how things um, uh, progress for you as well. Uh, your Facebook page has a lot of great videos. And I've only sampled a few of them. The TED Talk you gave at the high school that was excellent. That was really excellent. And your writing is wonderful. Mm-hmm. When I read the story, um, you. your personal Thank story you was, was really, um, I, I thought I, well, the thing about it that got me is, you know, there's a lot of talk about trauma going on today yeah, and the role that it plays in addiction. And, you know, sometimes we think about trauma as being inflicted on us by some person. And often that's the case, but in your case, it wasn't in your case, it was, it was your own physical condition. And wow, I thought that was really powerful. So great Thank story. You. Thank, Thank you, you very again much. for coming on. I really appreciate it. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyond belief sobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.